Hi, this is Mary. Welcome to my podcast, Mental State, where I talk about all things mental health and more. So today I have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Jolie Hamilton, and she is a relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. What does this mean? She has spent the past two decades studying and reimagining what love can be if we open our imaginations to possibility. Jolie helps people create non-monogamous partnerships that are custom-built for their authentic selves. No more shrinking, pretending, or hiding required. Jody is a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and ASECT certified sex educator. Jolie also co-hosts the Project Relationship podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Jolie's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, NPR, and The Atlantic. So I am very excited to have Jolie on the program. So welcome. Let's get right into it. So Jolie, one thing that really popped out to me when I was reading about you is that when you were getting into the poly space, you said you did polyamory poorly. How do you, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Yeah, Because I'm sure that there's so many people out there who are like, I want to deep I want to be poly, but I don't even know where to begin. And what if I'm bad at it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, to be fair, I had no idea what I was doing. And I think really, to be perfectly honest, I was doing all relationships badly. It was across the board. And polyamory simply upped the ante because now I couldn't hide behind the tropes of monogamy. And I was being asked to engage fully in multiple relationships from a place of like high communication and authenticity and transparency. And I didn't know how, but my gut said, yeah, I want to do that. And also there was very little resourcing. So mm. I, I mean, there, it, this is 15 years ago now. The You're a pioneer. Books, the books have come a long way. It's funny because, you know, humanity has been doing this yeah. the whole time, but white chicks in suburbia, not so much. So I didn't know what I was doing. I literally didn't even know the word polyamory until the year that I started practicing it. And it intuitively made sense to me. But yeah, there's just so, there was so much to learn. It was easy to do it badly. So when, when you say you did it badly, can you do you mind sharing an example of what Absolutely. that looked like? Yeah. Well, one of the first things was that I didn't know how I didn't know what language to use. And I understood that I needed to create shared meaning with the people I was relating to. But I didn't actually have a big enough relationship dictionary and a big enough emotional dictionary. So I didn't actually have the the literal language to speak out what I was feeling. So I did things like disallow the word jealousy because jealousy meant something bad. It meant you were a bad person. So we just mm. like forbade the word. Obviously, when we outlaw a word, uh, it's coming for us. And it came for me hard. Um, but I also did things like I allowed myself to be put in a position of being the secondary without knowing what I was agreeing to. Like I was brought into, I'm going to use huge air quotes here, into someone else's marriage. And I didn't know what that meant, but we talked a lot and used the words like egalitarian and we're all adults and we'll all have our own bedrooms. And then that's not what happened. And so I was in a power disparity, but I didn't know that going in. 
And then those power disparities grew and became arguments and pain for everybody involved. We didn't even know which conversations to have. We didn't know how to negotiate an agreement or multiple agreements. So, yeah, we kind of did everything badly. I learned the hard way. Yeah, it seems like in the beginning, like with any kind of relationship, oh, we're going to communicate and everybody's equal. And then the more you get into it, yeah, the more you do see the power struggles, the power shifts. And I love how you were saying, you know, the word jealousy and trying to kind of push it away like, oh, this relationship doesn't allow for jealousy. And what is the meaning of jealousy in the context of a poly relationship? Right. I I mean, I went on to do an entire doctoral dissertation on jealousy in the context of polyamory. And since I've started studying it in the context of monogamy as well, and once I really understood what jealousy was, that it's an emotion, it's a complex emotion designed to alert you to a potential threat to a valued relationship. And the threat doesn't have to be real. It can be imagined. Once I really internalized that and knew, oh, that's what I'm working with. Well, there's literally nothing to be scared of. It's an alert system. It's designed for a purpose. And it's there from the time we're infants. But it's really, really snarly. Like jealousy tends to tangle us up. It tends to both lead us to feel like we're a bad person. Like when I feel jealous, it's really easy for me to condemn myself internally. And at the same time, point my fingers out to my partner and my metamors and be like, you have to stop doing what you're doing so that I'll feel differently. And yeah, it's just, it's a really tangled up emotion for a lot of different reasons. And when you're non-monogamous, you are inviting the potential for jealousy in the door. That said, monogamy isn't protecting us from jealousy either. Otherwise, well, we wouldn't have all of the novels we have. We wouldn't have all the movies we have. I mean, jealousy's ever present. And personally, I don't want to get rid of it. It's there for a reason. I do want to work with it differently. And I want to understand that jealousy itself isn't a condemnation of who I am as a person. Yeah. And I love that you were talking about like the imaginary threat because I'm in a monogamous relationship and I have people say, aren't you jealous when your partner does XYZ with those women, maybe working on projects or, you know, running a workshop and gone for the weekend. And I'm like, I, I, I guess I could actually never really form any sort of words around it. And you just gave words to me, the imaginary threat. It's I'm not actually imagining that any of these people are threatening my relationship. Right. Right. And so some people, I find that when I talk to people who experience quite a lot of jealousy, so picture that, just picture the triangle that jealousy is. I have myself and my valued partner, beloved, and then I have this perceived interrupter. Some of us, it's really easy for us to imagine those perceived interrupters. We just, we see them everywhere. And those of us who, some of us can make them right up out of Instagram people. Like we don't need to actually even know. We can just invent them. And some of us just don't. Some people have a higher tolerance for multiplicity in relationships. Some people just don't feel the tenderness. It might have to do with any, we could go into all sorts of reasons why someone might have 
less tenderness around jealousy. And some of those might actually be a sign that, you know, you struggle to actually form attachments. And some of those might be, oh, you form really secure attachments. So it's not like there's a good amount of jealousy that makes you a good person. And this is why I really want to defang the idea that jealousy itself is good or bad. But if you are constantly pinged by the imagination that your, inter- that your relationship is going to be interrupted, it's just disruptive. It, it hurts. And it might lead you to make a lot of rules and to do a lot of clamping down around your partner where it's just not necessary. And that doesn't lead to the expansive life most people want with a partner that they have, especially for long term. That leads to a feeling of constriction. And most of us don't want that. And I like the that you said the word rules. So, so, so many things have just kind of popped into my head about what you're talking about with jealousy. One of the lenses in which I view people is through their attachment style. Mm -hmm. And so you use the word attachment, how people attach their partners. Um, And I'm just, so that's one thing. And then the other thing you're talking about was rules, right? And so what I'm imagining is maybe somebody who's more prone to jealousy calls these rules boundaries. I'm just making boundaries, right? And so when do boundaries... And and they, and they really believe in that. Boundary is a, a big buzzword. And so people can feel like I'm setting my boundaries. This is who I am, stake in the ground. And so I'm curious, you know, just kind of what you think about how the attachment styles work with the jealousy piece. And, and this might just fold into it as well. And also the rules slash boundaries. It's yeah, this is a complex topic for sure, because uh, a lot of us do a lot of protecting in our relationships, right? And rules are one of the ways that we can try to protect ourselves. We're existing here in a pretty punitive based culture, at least in America, right? Like we're it's a punishment oriented, like we have so many rules placed upon us and we're Mm -hmm. trained to follow rules or like and we're trained that to think that rules will keep us safe when in fact most of the time we see that the structure of rules can lead a lot of people that we partner with to actually violate those rules just because they don't like the rule even though they may have agreed to it or sort of agreed to it so the whole concept of rules gets really really complicated but let's just circle back to attachment There's been a fair amount of research around jealousy and attachment, but it's not like, I mean, attachment styles aren't something we are. I don't like over-identification with anything, really. The idea that I am an anxiously attached person or I am an avoidant, especially when we reduce it to to just one word, I hear people say like, you know, what an avoidant will do. I'm like, an avoidant, really? I, I'm not into that. I do appreciate that If you experience the world from a position where you want to avoid certain things in your relationships, like that structure may lead you to treat rules and jealousy in certain ways, but you aren't just avoidant. And there is no such thing as an avoidant person who's like perfectly avoidant. We're all a mix of anxiety and and disassociation and And these are just labels that we can put on ourselves to help us understand ourselves better and understand our partners better. 
So when I think about attachment style and jealousy, I go all the way back to infancy and think about the studies done by like Hart and Carrington. And I think about how they show that jealousy is present in infants as young as five Mm -hmm. and six months old, right? Like, so we're talking about a really rudimentary level of jealousy that's designed to keep me connected to a primary caregiver. I fast forward in, and we get no instruction on jealousy. Nobody talks to us about jealousy other than to maybe tell us it's bad if we don't share. Mm-hmm. Like, that's pretty much it. Mm. Fast forward to our teenage years when we're oh, starting Lord. to form romantic bonds. And again, nobody really talks about it, but we kind of romanticize jealousy. Like there's an, a right amount someone should feel jealous about us. Otherwise, they don't like us enough, but also too much jealousy. And we're like, jealous, insert expletive here. So there's a mess, right, in our adolescence. And then fast forward to our adult relationships. Now, ideally, we're trying to form meaningful connections with others, whether that's monogamous, non-monogamous, meaningful connections. And I have strategies that I learned when I was five and six months old to keep me connected to a primary caregiver. And now I probably try to apply some of those strategies unconsciously to these people who I'm trying to create meaningful connection with. But the strategies of an infant and a toddler and an adolescent aren't really reasonable to put into practice. But boy, we really try. So we try to control and we try to make rules and we try to make the world very simple. And we make these rules like it's okay for a dude to do this if he's in a cis-het mono relationship, but it's not okay for him to do all this stuff. It's okay for me to do these things if I'm, it, and none of that gets to the heart of, do I feel cared for by this person? Do, like when you described the situation with your husband, like off, maybe giving workshops, maybe traveling even with somebody who theoretically you could find threatening, do you feel cared? Do you feel cared for by your partner? Do you feel like he understands what your needs are? Or do you feel like you need to give him a set of rules so that he can follow those rules to prove to you that you're safe? Because those are two different ways to approach feeling less jealous. And one of them tends to work a little bit better than the other. It sounds like you have a, an ability to, to trust your partner. And they probably demonstrated that to you. But not everybody has that. Some people have partners who have proven time and time again to be untrustworthy. Now we've got a different headache on our hands because your attachment style may be, and your jealousy itself may be authentically indicating that there is a threat to your valued relationship. So what do we do with that? Like, I don't want to get rid of jealousy because what if there really is a threat? What if this really is a problem? What if you are being treated badly? I want to be able to engage in a conversation with my partner that makes sure that we're actually building a grown-up relationship, not just having toddler tantrums at each other to try to fix the the big ick that jealousy can feel like. And when you're talking about that trust issue or uh, being in a relationship with somebody who isn't building trust with, with you, or you're just not given a lot of reasons to trust that person, feeling anxiety around that doesn't mean you have an anxious attachment style. Right. Right. Exactly. That's not the diagnostic tool. It's just not. And we've kind of reduced this big concept mm. of attachment theory to be this this very narrow idea that that we just point. And we tend to point at ourselves or at others and just like 
slap the label on. And jealousy is a great place to start unpacking that because jealousy itself is a natural reaction to feeling a threat, to feeling unsafe. Cool. So I, my research showed that if people were able to notice their jealousy, name it, um, work with their own narrative of jealousy, and then negotiate with their partners, actually set appropriate boundaries and differentiate that from just trying to control their partner, because those are two different moves. If they could do those things, then jealousy, even if it was really big and felt very fiery or difficult to manage when it first arose, it could be managed, like regardless of how big it was when it showed up. But people who rejected the idea of jealousy or who hoped that monogamy itself would protect them from ever having to deal with it, they struggled more with the jealousy because they didn't know what to do or they weren't even allowed to talk about it. And so, as I learned myself, when we can't talk about something, it only gets bigger. So I think that was a big help to me to start using my jealousy to get to know myself and my relational needs more without getting reductive and saying, oh, I, like, I can't do polyamory because I'm jealous. Because that's bull. I mean, I experience jealousy all the time. I'm still poly, but 15 years later, that is the reason that you can't do something. It's, do I know how to work with the emotions that arise? Mm. So... I know that there are a lot of people out there who are probably interested in opening up their relationships. What are the steps to opening up a relationship successfully? Yeah. Talk about the five pillars of open relationships in a salon that I give about once a month. So if anybody's interested in coming, joining me there um, at openeasier.com, I, I can go through them in, in rich detail. But let's start off with a couple of not great ways. <laughs> the, the not great way, and this happened for me, bringing up the idea of opening once you already have somebody in mind who you'd also like to partner with, it's not going to go as easily as you would like. If you're currently partnered and you want to open that relationship and you've already got a person, now the, the idea and this outside person become sort of intrinsically tied together mm, in your partner's mm -hmm. mind. And so that is... It's like there's an agenda. Yeah, it's a harder road to hoe. It's not mm -hmm. like you, if you, it's not that you can't do it, but it will be. I encourage people if this is on your radar, if you are aware, this is anchor partner and I talk about it. We, once we started knowing the word polyamory, we both realized that we always walked around with an open window, open door. We weren't going to cheat, but just like an open window to the possibility that someone else interesting might come along, and who knows what could happen. And my anchor partner was in a don't ask, don't tell open relationship. So his window was way open. My window was cracked open. And, and I was like, yeah, I mean, like, like, I just have this awareness. And that ideally is what I should have brought to my current partner was, you know what? I think I need to know more about this because I think I would like to have multiple relationships. So that's just pro tip. If you can bring it up sooner rather than later. Um, and then. The steps, the first one that almost everybody jumps to is we just need to communicate. We need to communicate more. And I'm with you. I'm with you. But and I'm guessing you agree with me, Mary. The word communication has kind of lost all meaning. I hold so much. Like we, we just say, like, communicate more. But not all communication is created equal. Talking about something for 
months, years, hours on end every day can start to actually just become ingrown. And now you're not actually getting anywhere. And you probably just feel like your whole relationship is just the two of you bashing heads. So I don't actually recommend that either. Um, instead, I would say that there are some really specific conversations to have around what exactly opening, like, what's the interest? What's it bringing up for you? What What is that? And if you can ideally enter into if and again, this is all about being in a current relationship that you want to open another ball of wax if you're currently single and you want to you can get into a conversation where the two of you in this current relationship are engaging in your individuation process. Like, oh, we want to support each other becoming a more you version of you. I want to mm. I want to support that. And I'm going to differentiate from you in order to do that. I'm going to encourage you to walk your path and I'm going to encourage myself to walk my path and we'll figure out how we grow together and apart and together and apart. That is a really juicy, lovely, ongoing conversation. But a lot of times people unfortunately just jump into the deep end and they're like on apps or thinking about the sex piece of this all like right away. And that tends to be like putting the cart before the horse. I want to make sure people are talking about what this means for them, starting to put some basic relationship foundations underneath them because a lot of times there's stuff to shore up like making sure that I have the skills to self-regulate, that we understand our co-regulation. Do we have a safe word in our house for when we're arguing and we need to just like come back together? And can we make relationship agreements? In my experience, thousands of conversations, I've seen three decent relationship agreements come into my office. All the rest of the conversations, the agreements that were in place were not sufficient to actually help the people navigate the real world where actual stuff was going to happen. They were either too vague or too controlling. There's a sweet spot to hit there. So learning how to do that is a big skill set. So one thing that you said was the word sex. And what came up for me was that I'm really happy in my relationship right now. I just want to have sex with other people. There are lots of other labels that might be a good fit for you if you're considering an open relationship style that is specifically about sex, and I have a caveat. So you might try the phrase open relationship or polysexual or even consensual non-monogamy. That can work pretty mm. well. Or just non-monogamous. Most of us don't walk around saying consensually monogamous. <laughs> so we could just drop that word altogether. But And you'll also hear ethically non-monogamous, though. I have some issues because most of us don't really know what our full ethical code is. So... That's a big word to be carrying around as my identifier. I think that when we're talking about wanting a, a sexual connection, what I'm looking for is I feel sated in my emotional connection. My life works. Everything's good. I've built a life I like, but I would like more sex or I would like different sex. Cool. There's a difference between setting out to include more sexual pleasure and trying to make rules around whether somebody will have feelings or could have feelings or what might happen. Because in truth, if we start interacting with people, any people, anytime mm -hmm. we start interacting with them, we may develop emotional feelings for them. And when that happens, if now I have to end that connection because I have feelings, I think we're starting to practice something pretty dangerous for our humanity. Like, because I have feelings for you, I need to end this relationship. 
that really challenges my idea of what it is to be a person out in the world. Because when my partners make friends and they develop feelings like, like care and they have joy with their friends, I don't tell them, well, you're having care and joy with your friends. I, you're, oh, you felt sad with them. I'm going to need you to just stop being friends with them. I don't want you to have that emotional connection. But for some reason, we want to sort sex out and, and say, okay, so don't have any other feelings. It has to be just sex and no other feelings. And the oppositional defiance in me definitely wants to then have feelings too. So my persistent desire for autonomy is going to say, I think I have feelings now. But bottom line, it worries me when people try to say we can't have feelings, which is very different from, hey, we're setting out to swing. We're setting out to have joyful sexual connection. And we may even do some things to potentially limit the kind of emotional connections. Like I know several of my clients will only go to events and they'll go like they'll go to Hedo. They'll go to these bigger events where people get together and have sexual experiences or they'll go to a sex club and they'll have some engagement there or they'll hire a sex worker. They go to a place where this is all that's expected. But if you start building relationships in your community with people and you also want to make rules around feelings, over time, you, you're probably going to hit some bumps in the road. And now those bumps can be great if you're prepared for them and they can be awful if you're not. And that just makes me think how, um, you know, when, when people talk about either having a uh, polyamorous relationship or stepping outside of their relationship or non-monogamy, whatever it is that is working for that person, which just came up for me. And I know that this has happened with quite a few of my girlfriends was the idea of the emotional affair. Mm -hmm. And I think that the relationship doesn't necessarily have to include sex to be polyamorous, right? I absolutely, I can say that unequivocally because an asexual person can absolutely be in a relationship, right? And they can mm -hmm. absolutely be in a polyamorous relationship. And if you're asexual, then you, you may not participate in any sex at all because you may have no sexual desire at all. And that's fine. So I, we know for sure. And then on top of it, there are lots of kinds of relationships. There are lots of monogamous sexless relationships too. There, there just are. And some of them are quite happy. And it's not for me to decide whether sex, any, and, and, and if we're going to decide that sex is a measure of a healthy relationship, okay, how much and what kind and how's it happening? Like it, that, that argument immediately breaks down. It doesn't make any sense. So yeah, then we're faced with what about the emotional affair? And I got to say this many years in, I'm really, I don't understand this phrase. Um other than as one that is designed to keep us locked in this like very patriarchal, mononormative, our relationships have to look a very specific way. Because I've been incredibly close to friends who were like when I was raising my small children, they're grown now, but when I was raising them, my, my mom friends, oh my gosh, I was so close to them. There was no sex happening. There right. was no, but, but if though there was, a man. There was a dad amongst that group. Nobody was having sex with him either. But we were all aware that there was something different, that we weren't supposed to text him the same way. 
like the rules, the unspoken mm. rules of things. And I see people respond to it right now. I have how many adult functional humans in the world where just the wife will text me, just the husband will text my cisgender male nesting partner. Like we follow these rules thinking they're going to protect ourselves. And I got to say, as a bisexual woman married to a bisexual man, doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But I understand why we think that it will protect us, why we imagine that will protect us. My question would be, can we actually have the emotional relationships that we want to? Right. And that goes back to the rules and the jealousy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. So it's I'll like, make these rules to keep me safe. If your husband isn't texting your best girlfriend, then okay, my relationship is safe. But once he texts her, oh my gosh, what does that mean? Right. Yeah, and it's... a lot of people will get really, like, they'll get into the the minutia of it and they'll start talking about like, well, it's okay as long as it's logistics planning, but not if, you know, not if they're going to talk about like discipline of the kids or not if they're going to talk about our plans for the weekend like that. Like they'll get really into the weeds about it because they're seeking safety instead of, and this, I think of this as Hera jealousy, right? I studied mythology quite yeah. a lot in my graduate oh, degree, yeah. right? But this is Hera jealousy where Hera turns all of her aggression, right, to the third, to the perceived interrupter and never just looks at Zeus and says, dude, would you put it in your pants? And Hera's fine. Hera's perfect as she is because she's supposed to be flawed this way. This is her jam. But I don't want to be Hera. I, I want to engage with that archetypal energy and recognize that Hera gives us an example of marriage where she never actually engages with Zeus and says, this is what I need from you. Let's engage this way. Let's find support. Let's find help. Again, gods aren't supposed to do this. But when I see a person engaging with their partner in a way that says, I'm going to control who you can talk to rather than talk directly to you, rather than engage with you, rather than seek to create the emotional bond that I want with you. I'm going to try to control the other, control the third. It doesn't work out in the long run because eventually, ideally, we're going to have friends. And ideally, our friendships are going to have some emotional gravity for us. And to limit that to gender, again, the, the, the uh, cishet mono imagination is the one that lets us create these pretty simple rules and imagine that they'll keep us safe. As soon as you break that, those rules don't even work anyways. Yeah, and I can imagine Hera is just living her life in a constant state of hypervigilance. Absolutely. Hypervigilance. Monitoring. Yep. Hypervigilance, monitoring, and, and so much, so much rage. Hera is, is filled with rage and bitterness. Um, in fact, the flavor of bitter is attached to the archetypal image of Hera, right? It's not, it doesn't feel good to be in that space. It's, I don't think it's an accident that we're given Hera as the model of marriage from a patriarchal culture, right? From the Greek culture that was like, I don't, I don't think it's an accident that we're presented with that versus all of the other, there are, there are other goddesses who could embody that who are coming from a, a more generative and connective perspective. Um, I mean, archetypal psychology isn't for everyone, but if you're feeling a little resonance around your level of anger and control, it's worth reading some mythology and seeing whether you can't see yourself in it. I find it to be a really instructional move for myself. Oh, I love mythology. Yeah. I love it. And the women seem to 
always get punished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For we have to indiscretions. Have, for their indiscretions. <laughs> right. Where Zeus is just out doing God knows what. So I know that I don't know if you're you're still working on this, but you were doing a study about jealousy and it's a qualitative study. Mm-hmm. And what I what really resonated with me, especially as a therapist, about your studying what it's like for people to be in their jealousy. And you did it on non-monogamy and monogamy. And so was there any difference between the two populations? Yeah. So the study is ongoing um, because what I've done so far, I did a a, a non-monogamous population, then I collected a monogamous population. I did cross studies and I've so far, the first release of the cross study will be just the female subjects. So self-identified women, cisgender women happen to be the only women that applied to be in this particular grouping. And there were very clear differences. I can say pre-publication that there are differences in the non-binary and male subjects as well. And the biggest difference is the language that people have available to themselves to talk about their jealousy. Non-monogamous people had a certain expectation that they were going to be working with jealousy and they'd done some sort of pre-gaming around like, oh, I need to do some research. Whereas monogamous folks often just assumed that their way of seeing jealousy was the way mm. and, and didn't necessarily know that it might come in different flavors, different forms, didn't recognize that, oh, my jealousy might be angry, but my partner might have sad jealousy. And those are they work differently and they look different. And they might imagine, and a lot of people did imagine, that they couldn't talk about jealousy. Like, there's just no place. There's no forum to talk about it. So monogamous folks reported fewer places to just talk about, like, yeah, I'm feeling jealous. Because if they're jealous, something's wrong with their relationship, right? Like, that, it's just automatic. Whereas in the non-monogamous world at this point, and this was not true 15 years ago, at this point, if you say you're feeling some jealousy. It is not assumed that there's something inherently wrong with your non-monogamous relationship. It's assumed that you've got an emotion to deal with. If you say, I've got jealousy, people start problem solving. Okay, how do we make the jealousy go away? And who's at fault? And, and one of the ways that we say who's at fault is some people have decided jealousy is, it's not a real thing. A lot, they were, there was a bunch of my, non, my monogamous sample who felt that jealousy, it's just insecurity. So it's just, it's not a real thing. Just don't be insecure. Just just don't. And so again, we're not actually working with the fact that when jealousy arises, it's primal, it's archetypal, it's huge, it is wired into us. And some people really do feel it as a tidal wave. And so to say it's just insecurity or say, oh, I don't even need the word jealousy because it's just insecurity. And if you're feeling jealousy, it's just that. So demoralizing to the person who's been swept off their feet by the tidal wave. So there are differences. And the biggest one is totally manageable. It's let's talk about jealousy more. Let's talk about it with our friends. Let's normalize it. And let's remember that it itself is not a mark of a good or bad relationship or even real threat. We have to dig in deeper to find out, is there a real threat or do I need to get clearer on what my needs are and what I want out of this relationship? And those conversations are intimacy producing, right? Jealousy is an opportunity for intimacy, but we have to revision it to see it that way. Yeah. And I think once you start naming these things and these emotions, especially jealousy, 
and owning up to it. I think it just is, it gives you the opportunity for, you know, such a bigger conversation. And I can imagine too, it might give some relief to the other person. Like, oh, wow, you're feeling jealous. I'm feeling jealous as well. Right. 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 And, and, and there can be so much shame around feeling jealous. Like, oh, there must be something wrong with me because I'm feeling jealous about this thing. And now I have to go to therapy and work on my jealousy issues. And so, right. yeah. Yeah. Shame is one of the core emotions that came up attached to jealousy. And whether we think, depending on which model of jealousy you use, either jealousy is made of these other emotions or it comes along with all of these other emotions. But everybody's jealousy comes in flavors. It doesn't mm-hmm. come alone. There's no such thing as just jealousy. And in fact, if somebody says just jealousy, I am instantly like, oh, my aunt and I are up because it's going to come in a flavor. So just think of what are three or four other words that you would use to describe how you're feeling right now. And you might use sensation words to start digging into it. If you're more of a bo- embodied type person, or you might use emotion words, you might look at a feelings wheel. What else is coming up? Because if you identify the other, the flavor of your jealousy, now you might feel more empowered. Like, oh, I'm feeling depressive jealousy. I'm feeling sad. Like Hephaestus is another mythological figure who feels incredible jealousy, but his jealousy is sad and self-pitying and digs itself a little hole and goes and climbs into it and gets all demanding and controlling in a different way. And if we can recognize that we feel jealousy in these different ways, some of us feel shameful and self-piteous and some of us feel enraged and self-righteous, then we can actually start working with the reality of, oh, jealousy is in the room. I feel a threat and I need to work with all the emotions that came along with that. And that can lead us into stronger relationships with more firm foundations. And that also gets into, you know, our nervous system too. Right. And how we, how do we work, how do we work with our nervous system in a context of like all these different types of relationships that we can be in? Right. Yeah. How do I work with my nervous system? And, and one, I actually did a whole, I use neurosomatic intelligence as my primary nervous system regulation tool. And I did a whole class on this, on rewiring jealousy. Like a lot of us have to work with our jealousy right from baseline, like just being allowed to even say or name that I'm jealous or just being allowed to say or name that my partner is jealous and that that isn't necessarily my responsibility because my partner might be jealous. And I might be not doing anything problematic, but their jealousy may feel like it is my problem. I have to fix their emotion. So working at the level of the nervous system is really, really important because we often can't even get to the conversations because we're so dysregulated just by the mere fact of jealousy. And the kind of dysregulation, again, go back to it's the kind that shows up when we're infants because this is the same emotion that was hardwired to keep us connected. So we're now triggered back into early emotional states that are pre-verbal and become really difficult to have a reasonable conversation about. And anybody who says that they can just talk rationally about their jealousy at all times, again, I'm suspicious about whether you are just intellectualizing it or whether you're working with your nervous system and working with the emotions and really starting to connect to it. And even if that's true for you, it might not be true for your partner and that doesn't make them a bad person or less intelligent or less emotionally intelligent. They might just feel more intensely their pre-verbal wound around jealousy. That just deserves more attention. It does not deserve to be maligned. Yeah, especially like when we're talking about, you know, like ruptures and repairs when it comes to 
again, you know, going back into that attachment system. And as a baby, I might have felt that, you know, in the rupture, I might have felt that jealousy. And my mom kind of maybe like held me closer and repaired it. And then I went back to cooing and smiling and giggling, whatever I was doing. But it, and and it doesn't mean that like I'm, you know, just because I had a rupture in that attachment system, it doesn't mean if I feel jealousy then I have anxious attachment style or disorganized attachment style. We do have these natural ruptures in our attachment system as babies that can get repaired immediately. And it doesn't mean that those feelings go away just because I had some really good repair around it. I like how you're saying, like, we still carry these core instincts. Right. So this is why I studied jealousy as an archetypal pattern, because the the concept of an archetypal pattern is that it is to the human experience what an instinct would be to to an animal without a prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. that's doing all the rationalization that I'm doing, right? It's their patterns of behavior that are innate to humans. We've never there is no culture that has been spotted without a form of jealousy. This is this it's normal. And we do tend to pathologize it and we demonize it. And even if you think about like, where did you first learn about jealousy? It tends to be in in some cartoon, like I ask people, where did you first learn about jealousy? And it'll be like, yeah, some cartoon painted green um, or they were reading Shakespeare and learning about the green eyed monster of Othello. Like they're green not with envy, Im- right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're not pretty images. They're just not pretty images. And so we've demonized this. And so I think we have a cultural shadow around jealousy itself that deserves our attention and to not be put into this position of saying jealousy is a bad emotion because we would not say that about anger or sadness at this point. I don't know any I don't know any therapist anywhere that would say sadness or anger is a bad emotion. However, exactly. yeah. The APA itself defines jealousy as a negative emotion. I and I really just don't see that jealousy it's designed to protect us. How could that be entirely negative? I just don't we often experience it with this negative tone, but a lot of that has to do with the shame and judgment that's placed on us by our cultural container around jealousy or by the very bad behavior that we act out in that then does warrant some judgment because about 74% of the cases of domestic violence in this country have jealousy in their roots. So if you behave badly due to your jealousy, you may also have this demonization of jealousy itself. But again, that doesn't help us actually unpack the jealousy and what I should do. Because ideally what I'd be doing when I feel triggered into jealousy would be turning to others, turning to connection with my partner, maybe, maybe with my community, maybe with my friends, maybe with my my caretakers, who, whoever it is, who can I connect to, to gain some sense of co-regulation again. Because if jealousy is a problem, it's an interpersonal problem, it needs an interpersonal solution. And that's what the other thing I was going to say was when you're saying when one partner is feeling jealous, I was going to say this is when co-regulation can be so important in a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where I really, I think in our friendships, we can go a long way to working with jealousy in our friendships as well. And remember, jealousy isn't just for romantic relationships. So you may experience jealousy in your friendships, but you could also rely on co-regulation with non-romantic partners to help you work with your jealousy. A lot of times that, in fact, is a really good tool. What if 
all of my worth as a human didn't have to come from this one place? What if I could turn to my friends and say, I'm feeling jealous and here's the flavor of it. Here's what it feels like in my body. Could you breathe with me and mm. remind me that I don't need to act super fast and that in fact, I could write about this in my journal. And if we see a pattern of behavior over time, uh, maybe this is a problem, but maybe it's just me freaking out right now and I just need to be held through it for a little while. Maybe we could do that. <laughs> so I want to circle back and I just think that exploration of jealousy is so important. And I want to circle back how to approach this conversation of opening up the marriage or whatever label you want to put on it. If you're looking for outside relationships that are very robust or if you're just looking for sex or whatever it is, what came up for me when you were talking about, you know, have the conversation when you're not like, oh, I want to have a relationship with this person. Now I'm going to bring it. I mean, I've heard that so many times when somebody's like met somebody outside their relationship and is all of a sudden like, oh, now I want to open up my relationship. But they're only think looking at it from their side. They're probably not thinking about it. Okay, well, then what does it look like from your partner's side when you experience your partner opening up the relationship? That's yeah. a whole different conversation. But what I, what came up for me is that if it's just more of a curiosity, I think that I think the curiosity can bring some really rich dialogue into the relationship that may not really be like, oh, maybe it's not, I don't want to open up our relationship so that I can go outside of the relationship, but maybe I just want to open up our relationship that we're having together more. Yeah. Um, but there may be things, some things that aren't working out. And one of the things that you had mentioned was, you know, there are some people who are in these monogamous, non, you know, sexless relationships. So, and I think that sometimes people have these ideas, especially when they're in these conventional monogamous relationships is like, oh, I just want to have sex with other people. So what came up for me is what is one single conversation that you can have to reignite the sex life? Yeah, I, the, I mean, I've sat in rooms of a thousand sex therapists, counselors, educators, and the conversation that is always the juiciest for me is one that starts, it starts off well in that room because we all know it's going to be a hot mess. It's, it, but it, this conversation <laughs> works for everyone everywhere. It starts with what is sex? What is sex? And we can get in, there's a whole more nuanced conversation behind that, but it starts with what is sex? How do I know when I'm having it? How do I want to feel when I'm having it? But it starts with what is sex? Because a lot of times when I see people who aren't having the sex that they want and start thinking about opening, they haven't actually had a conversation with their current partner about what sex is and what it means to be having it. So I thoroughly encourage everyone to go home and have a conversation with your current partner. And it's a great date night conversation because if you can enter beginner's mind here, and really go back to the basics and not just say, oh, you know, but actually engage in this as if you didn't know each other. The cool thing is we all change over time. So if you've been together for any period of time, your assumptions about what is sex for each other may be blown open. I have partners who I've had for years and years who, when we revisit this question, I'm, my mind is blown by how they've changed, how I've changed when we talk about Oh, well, I, I don't know. Sex is, here's my favorite definition right now. And it's actually my anchor partner's current definition is the overlapping of erotic 
experience. Man, that is broad. Like that is broad. So technically like standing on a beach, letting the waves lap his feet while watching a sunset and just like feeling it all the way in his body. He's, he's like, yeah, that's, that is highly sexual for me. If I didn't ask the question, I wouldn't know. And from there, I have the potential to have like a thousand other conversations. And no two definitions of sex I've ever heard are just lined up perfectly. They're always nuanced and unique and individual, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that you were, you know, just even asking that question, what is sex? Because I think a lot of what happens in relationships is that sex becomes something that we do once every two weeks or once a month just to keep the just to keep the wheels greased. Yep. But it's not duty some, sex. Yeah. Yeah. Duty sex, right? It's Saturday night. I have to have sex with my partner. Oh, God. okay. Can we just get it over with? Right. Right. And now we could turn to the amazing work of Emily Nagoski, or we could mm. turn to Meg John Barker's work around have sex if, when, and how you like to. Don't. There's so much amazing work out there. Cindy Darnell's work about sex when you don't feel like it. That, I mean, her work around like, what if I want to want to, but I don't want to? I don't. I, I, that's very different from if I don't want to want to. Those are two different mental states, right? And if I'm caught up in duty sex, I'm probably actually stopping my own erotic fires because I'm not even allowing for desire. Or, and maybe that's because I don't like the sex that I think is on the table. But have I really had the conversations? Because a lot of times it's, it's just fallen out of fashion in my particular relationship to have the conversation about, how do you want to be touched? How do you want to be looked at? What setting? What do you want the music to be like? What do you want? What do we need to do differently here? And this is an especially great conversation to have if you do currently have good sex, but only when you're at hotels. Because we know there's room to work with right there. Like if, if currently hotel all sex. your good sex happens in the hotel, <laughs> there's room to work. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm also thinking even, you know, generationally, I think what's interesting, especially about these topics about sex, is that people think like, oh, um, I guess I guess it would be like old Gen Zers, young millennials, like they're kind of on that cusp of, you know, somewhere in the ages of like 28 and 30 or, or, or even teenagers, like, oh, everybody is so fluid now. Yep. And it, it kind of makes me laugh because, you know, I think that I'm a, what am I a, I'm a Gen Xer. Me too. And yay. And right I think that we were fluid too. We just didn't have the words for it. And we just weren't as out about it. Just going yeah, back to that, that. There was yeah. no language and people were dabbling. Yeah. And there was a lot of dabbling. And I'm just curious, like, what do you see in the, let's go with like older millennials, Gen X population when it comes to these types of topics? It's. To me, it's interesting. So I have seven kids and they are between the ages of 16 and 24. And so I have yeah, firmly in Gen Z, and, but I have quite a few clients who are in that elder Gen Z into the millennials and they're falling into a couple of interesting paths. Yeah, some of them are. They're like, yeah, of course, things are fluid. We're keeping things lighter and casual for longer. Um, there is more language. They're being exposed to different language earlier and more often. And they only have to click like seven buttons to find out a 
wealth of information. I worked hard One and got five channel. psychology degrees in order right. to learn, right? Like, yeah, they're just like, boom, go follow some people. You're good. So they have access to all of this. However, there's also this, like, these desires to have a secure, uh, predictable experience of love. I want to be loved. I want to have a love story. I want, and I'm seeing that. And like, how do you hold the tension of wanting both of those things? You know, Esther Perel gave our generation the idea of, of, hey, desire versus, you know, security. And we need to sit in the, in the tension of those opposites. This generation, I think, is going to be sitting with the tension of security, yeah, and fluidity. Like that, it's a little bit different. It's more nuanced. Like, what if I stay in that space of fluidity so much that I, I don't feel like I can claim a stance and I just always feel like I'm dynamic and I can't ever just say, you know what? I know what I want. I know what I want. And I think one of the solutions for that is to add a, a few words onto, I know what I want. And that's, I know what I want for now. Because if we even just say, I know what I want for now, we can start creating a more solid stance and build something while hopefully not letting go of all the beauty of fluidity and saying like, yep, and we're going to renegotiate. I renegotiate my marriage every three years, like hardcore, like with a full off-ramp potential every three years. That's a very different relationship than my mother had. And I love That's that. That's even a very different relationship that that people in our generation are having too. Exactly. I don't think, I, you know, people didn't go into marriages thinking like, okay, what's our game plan? Right. It's just like, right. oh, I met you uh, a year later, we're engaged and a year later we're married and we don't know what we're doing. Right. And we didn't necessarily have the images. We weren't presented with a lot of different images and we're right. actually past the time of like the the revolution, the free love revolution. I like so yeah, we, we kind of got caught in a and then I, I think of it as it's kind of a dud zone. It's a, <laughs> a bit of a like. I don't know. It was the 80s and 90s. There were a lot of shoulder pads. I don't really remember anything else. <laughs> shoulder so, pads and flannel. Yeah, we just had Right? And that's like the two opposites. It was like glam into flannel. Into flannel. Exactly. And we have to remember that like we're we're not dead yet. I, a lot of my clients are in like late 30s to mid 50s. That's like the uh, and they're like, "Oh, if I'm ever going to explore something more expansive, whether that's Opening up in the that like, oh, we're going to open everything or whether it's some creative monogamy, wherever it is, it's an opening I want to have within myself. And that requires me to have more complex conversations with my partner. We're ever going to do it. Now's the time. Don't wait. Right. And learning the ways of navigating those conversations, because, yeah. again, like when you, when you're talking about the older part of the spectrum, like nobody really learned how to actually, you know, going back to what you're saying, what does communication mean? People didn't really learn how to communicate. And so I love that the Zers are exposed to all of this information that they can, you know, really explore their own sexuality, their own gender identity, their fluidity, what relationships mean and all of that. So thank you so much. I love this conversation. And where can we find more yeah. about so, you? I mean, if you want to hear more of this, um, then you might want to head over and check out my podcast. It's called Playing With Fire. And Talking I'll put about all, all that in stuff, the show notes. All the time. 
And if you're thinking about opening up, go take my quiz. It'll put you into my world. The quiz is just 10 questions designed out of my research to see where you are on the scale from, oh my gosh, my relationship needs serious foundations to hell yeah, let's ready, let's go. You can go to joliequiz.com and take that quiz, learn more and start your education. Start figuring out what this means for you. You can also follow me on socials at Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Well, thank you so much for joining. I learned a lot on this podcast. I'm inspired to have some deeper conversations with my partner and even and all of my friends. So thank you so much. Yay. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I really appreciate it. To find out more about Jolie, go to JolieHamilton.com, J-O-L-I Hamilton.com. And you can find out more about me if you're interested in learning more about polyamory, relationships, dating, anything at all. Please DM me at Mary B Therapy on Instagram or check out my website, MaryBTherapy.com. And thanks for listening.